Well, last week we saw where we, the church, are in the midst of all of the chaos and idolatry brought about by the work of the devil. We are redeemed, we are secure in the presence of the Lamb on Mount Zion, singing a new song before the throne of God. This image confirmed to us the truth that while the devil is raging and his fury is directed at the church in this time of the last days, he may make war against us and even appear to conquer us, but he'll never be able to destroy us. Where is the safest place for us to be in this world and in this life? It's in Christ. If you belong to God, or to use the language of Revelation, if you have the name of the Lamb and of the Father on your forehead, then no matter where you are located on this planet, your true location is in Christ. And there's nowhere more secure than that. Now this is the second time we've seen God's people depicted as 144,000 sealed with God's name on their foreheads. And it's the third time that we've seen them described as located in the temple, the house of God, which was located in its physical form on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Now, this is a theme we'll get used to seeing in this book. It is, in a sense, it's one of the central themes of the whole book. The security of God's people, his chosen, redeemed, adopted children, made secure by the blood of the Lamb. But you may remember what we also saw in the vision of the seven trumpets. They were the judgments of mercy through which God is making the gospel and the call to repentance and faith clear. We saw that those who were safe within the walls of the temple were surrounded by the nations and they were also called to go out to the nations to prophesy. Uh, We were told... John says, I was given a measuring rod like a staff and I was told, rise up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. There's the picture of the saints kept safe within the temple, which has been measured to show that it's big enough to hold them all. But he goes on, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it's given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months and I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. That was the call to take the gospel to those nations who were trampling the holy city outside the temple and even though the response will be one of hostility and persecution we're called to go because it's only through the preaching of the gospel, that people will come to faith in Jesus. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ, it says in Romans ten seventeen. So thus far we've seen that our response to all that's happening in the world, which we understand as the judgments of our sovereign God, who's using everything to carry out his purpose, our response is twofold. First, to be assured of our salvation and security in the redeeming work of the Lamb, and second, to answer the call to be his witnesses, so that others may hear the good news and come in to be with us in the presence of the Lamb. (coughs) 
And we're seeing the same pattern here in this fourth vision. The first four figures of the woman, the dragon and the two beasts, they depict for us what's taking place on earth in the unfolding of history under the sovereign hand of the Father, this time with the particular perspective of the part that the devil plays in it all. And the last three figures give us insight into the place of the church in all of this and how all things will be resolved. So, like the previous vision, last week was the picture of the church kept safe from the rage of the devil and this week we'll see the call that's on the church to counteract the devil's schemes or I should say the way that Jesus counteracts his schemes through us. Now Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 that because of our position in Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places, we're now engaged in a spiritual battle. He says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Now, probably none of us have had reason to put on armour unless we've served in the military or the police. A full set of armour equips a soldier both for defence and offence. We put it on so that we'll be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, in verse 11. The security we have because of truth, righteousness, faith, salvation, all one for us by Jesus. But... In this armour, there are also two components that enable us to go on the offensive. Not merely to be kept safe from the devil, but to bring down his strongholds and weaken his attacks. The one most people identify is the sword of the spirit, the word of God in 17. But the other one is the shoes for our feet in verse 15, which are readiness given by the gospel of peace. See, a soldier doesn't wear shoes so he can retreat and be safe, but so he can be ready to advance and attack. His shoes protect and shore up his feet, giving him a good footing so that he can fight. So the two parts of the armour that equip us to go out and actively fight against the devil's schemes are the gospel of peace, and the word of God, which really are one and the same thing. The gospel gives us the readiness because it's the gospel of peace. 
which tells us our objective in the battle. We are a peacemaking, peacekeeping force because our goal in proclaiming the gospel is to invite people into a place of reconciliation and peace with God and with one another. And the sword, the word, is the weapon we use to undercut the devil's schemes, the truth of God that exposes and demolishes his lies. And of course the word of God is also what the Holy Spirit uses to cut right into people's hearts and convict them of sin and righteousness and judgment, to show them the reality of Jesus and to draw them to him in repentance and faith. Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If you think about this phrase, he's describing the church as attacking hell, not being defended from hell. The church is an army at the city gates, battering their way in, so that those held captive inside may be liberated. The old uh, hymn books with topical indexes often had a section titled The Church Militant and Triumphant, in which the activity of the church in this world is like that of an army fighting the battle against sin, persecution and the devil. Did you realise that when you came to Jesus and submitted to his lordship over your life, you became not only a child of the Father, but also a soldier in his army with Jesus as your captain. Later in Revelation, we'll see Jesus depicted as a warrior riding on a white horse with the armies of heaven, which is us, following also on white horses as Jesus leads us in his victory parade. So the moment you became aligned with Jesus by faith, the moment he liberated you from the bonds of hell and sin and Satan, you entered into a spiritual battle because his enemies then became your enemies. The devil's fury is directed against us because he hates our king. And we're not called to be passive bystanders, but to step up and enter the fray. We know that victory is assured. And that's meant to make us confident, not complacent. It's meant to enable us to stand firm, not sit down and relax. So our sixth figure in this vision, which is actually three angels all working in unison, are a picture of this spiritual battle. How the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, are the weapons that enable and keep us in the battle and they're used to undermine all of the devil's schemes. The first angel, verses 6 and 7, proclaims the gospel. Now it's flying directly overhead or literally in the middle of the heavens. This word describes the point in the sky that the sun reaches at midday when it's visible to all, and where it makes everything else visible. Shadows are at their shortest, or even non-existent at midday. So this scene that's been set for us so far with the sea 
and the plains and the mountain, this angel's message directly overhead goes out to all and needs to be proclaimed to all, to every nation, tribe, language and people, verse 6. So in this scene that has been set for us in this vision with the sea and the plains and the mountain, this angel's message up in the sky goes out to all. It needs to be proclaimed to all, to every nation, tribe, language and people, verse 6. So it's seen and heard both by the saints secure up on Mount Zion and by the idolaters worshipping the beast down on the plains. John also calls it an eternal gospel. This is the only place in the Bible where the gospel is called eternal. And this word eternal carries so many connotations that we could have a whole sermon just on that one phrase. Eternal means no beginning and no end. The gospel is something that was planned by the Father in eternity past. And it will bear fruit that will continue into eternity future. Eternal means unchanging. The gospel has always been the same and never needs to change. It's true and relevant for all people everywhere in every time. So while the way we communicate it may differ, depending on who we're speaking to, the message of the gospel will always remain the same. If we try to change it, it will no longer be the gospel. And eternal means substantial, of such a quality that it endures, never fades in glory. It's reliable. It's worthy of standing upon. This eternal gospel is what Jesus has entrusted to us, the church, to make known in the world. And it's our counter-offensive to the devil. So let's see what this first angel says. Fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now, you're probably thinking, that doesn't sound like the gospel. He doesn't mention Jesus or and his death or resurrection. He doesn't present the four spiritual laws, the Romans road, the bridge to life, two ways to live or even the authentic life. But let's look a bit closer and we'll see why what this angel says is in line with the biblical gospel. See, firstly, that this message contains a call, a call to fear God, to give God glory and to worship him. The gospel isn't merely a collection of ideas or information. It's the announcement of world-tilting news that not only demands our attention, it also demands our response. The goal of the gospel announcement is that people will hear and respond and will become those who fear, glorify and worship God. After all, that's the purpose for which we were created. The Westminster Catechism opens with, The chief end of man is to glorify God and fully enjoy him forever. John Piper said, Missions exist because worship doesn't. See, the purpose of evangelism, of missions, of proclaiming the gospel, is to bring worshippers before the throne of the Father to worship him in spirit and in truth. So becoming a Christian isn't changing your belief system. It's changing 
your loyalty. Remember, this message, this eternal gospel is given in the context of the devil deceiving and leading people on earth into the idolatrous worship of the image of the beast. And that stark contrast of the redeemed on Zion worshipping the Lamb, the true image of God. See, becoming a Christian is changing the object of your worship. Paul describes it in 1 Thessalonians 1. He says, You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now this command to turn from idols, to fear and glorify and worship God, is not in itself the gospel, but the gospel message includes the wonderful news that because of what Jesus has accomplished in his cross, in his resurrection, through faith in him you may be restored back to your true, authentic purpose as a human being. Where fearing and glorifying and worshipping God becomes your greatest and highest joy and delight. Now secondly, see how the message speaks clearly of judgment. Uh, The reason to fear and glorify him is because the hour of his judgment has come. And the reason to worship him is because he is the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now here again is a phrase that isn't worded as we might expect. When we hear that God made the heavens and earth, we immediately think of creation, Genesis 1.1. So when we come to the sea, we might feel the next logical word is, and the dry land, because it fits with the creation story. But it says, the sea and the springs of water. What's that all about? Well, it's pointing us back, not just to the time of creation, but to the time of the flood. Most children's storybooks of Noah and the flood have the 40 days of rain causing the flood. But what does the actual account in Genesis, Genesis 7, 11 say? In the 600th year of Noah's life, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. The flood was brought by rain from heaven, yes, but also the springs of water from the great deep. So it's to say, worship him who made the sea and the springs of water is referring to the God who brought worldwide judgment at the flood and is able to bring a worldwide judgment again. Now you're probably thinking this still doesn't sound like the gospel. It's all about judgment. But let's look again. That phrase, the hour of his judgment has come, takes on a new meaning when we hear it through the lens of Jesus the Lamb. While the Father has set a day at the end of this age when every person, living or dead, will stand before his judgment throne, he's also brought his judgment forward to another day. The day when the Son went to the cross 
and the wrath of God upon human sin was poured out on him in the place of sinners. Jesus said uh, a few days before this day of judgment, John 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world, the devil, be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. What was the kind of death? It was a death that would actually mean the judgment of this world and the casting out of the ruler of this world and also a drawing of all people, not just Jews, but every nation, tribe, people and tongue to himself. So if you know Jesus by faith, if you're trusting in his saving work, then you can truly say the hour of my judgment God's judgment upon me has come and gone. It took place 2,000 years ago at Calvary. It's finished, completed, paid in full. The Lamb has taken my sin and cast it into the deepest sea. The second angel in verse 8, his message is short and sharp and in a sense it's the flip side of the first angel's message. Babylon is fallen. Now we'll see in coming weeks more about Babylon, what this name signifies in the Bible and in Revelation and what the fall of Babylon means. But for now, we can think of Babylon as human beings in organised, sophisticated rebellion against God and his purposes, energised by the devil. Human beings in organised, Sophisticated rebellion against God and his purposes, energised by the devil. In other words, humanity working hard at not fearing, not glorifying and not worshipping God. Now what does it mean for Babylon to make the nations drink the wine of the passion of a sexual immorality? Again, maybe not what we immediately think. This isn't an image of seduction. And the reason I say that is because if we look at verse 10, we see the phrase, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath. Now this Greek word translated wrath is exactly the same one translated passion in verse 8. So the phrases are almost identical except for who it is that makes people drink the wine of wrath. So we've got to understand verse 8 in light of verse 10 and see that Babylon isn't on about seducing but destroying, pouring out wrath on anyone who opposes her. Now this verse is particularly pertinent to us today. We live in a culture where the world's view of gender and sexuality is constantly imposed and enforced upon Everyone and lifestyles that are shaped around sexual immorality are expected not only to be tolerated but embraced and celebrated by everyone, all under the banners of inclusion and love is love. But what happens to the person who refuses to celebrate sexual immorality and 
stands firm on the biblical teaching on sexuality. For they face the wrath of Babylon. I won't say more on this right now, but in a few weeks, July the 30th, we'll we'll be in a break from Revelation and we'll take a look at the biblical teaching on gender and sexuality and how we as God's people today can have a biblical response that's both truthful and gracious. But for now, the simple message in the context of the gospel proclamation is that Babylon is doomed. Don't look to Babylon for your security. Don't look to Babylon to define your identity or to direct you in how to live. It's a system that seems to be standing strong, but its foundations are shifting sands. And in God's perfect time, it will pass away and be superseded by the kingdom of God. This premise, Fallen Babylon, was the basis for John Bunyan's famous book, Pilgrim's Progress. It's the story of a man who, being warned, left his home city, called the City of Destruction, in order to gain entry into another city, the celestial city, which we'll see in Revelation, is the New Jerusalem. The Gospel calls us not only to turn to God, but to turn from Babylon and all its idols, and instead... Look to a city with foundations, the city built by God. Now, the third angel's message in 9 to 11 is the warning that must be issued to everyone who hears the gospel and its call to repent and believe. So essentially, you must be clear on the consequences of your response to the gospel call. If the gospel is true and Jesus truly is the only one who can save you from the wrath your sin deserves, then to reject his call to come to him means being willing to face the consequences. Now these are strong words in this angel's message, a strong description of judgment that's final and complete and irreversible. We balk today at Words like fire and sulphur, or in the old King James, fire and brimstone, and smoke, and torment. We don't like the idea of God sending people to hell, where there are no second chances. Now remember that this is a vision, and so fire and sulphur and smoke are used symbolically, not literally. Hell isn't literally a hole under the ground filled with literal fire. Hell is exclusion from the graciousness and goodness of God's blessing. It's not God being absent, but all one sees of God is his face turned away from us. I think if there's a phrase in this passage that we should focus on, it is, they have no rest day or night. Remember Cain? After rejecting God's gracious word and God's offer of restoration, we're told he went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod. Now, Nod means wandering or restlessness. 
Cain is a model for anyone who rejects the grace of God, never able to go back to Eden, never able to enter into God's rest. To be in that place, banished from God's favour, never able to rest, that will be the torment of the worst kind, which is why Jesus uses images of fire, of outer darkness, of weeping and gnashing of teeth. If we reject mercy, then all that's left for us is justice. We demand that God be fair and just, and in the end, we will see clearly that he is. So we can either come to his justice displayed at the cross on the basis of what Jesus has done for us, or we can come to his justice on our own, on the basis of what we have done. Each is a response to the gospel, and each response comes with consequences, life or death. So the question isn't, have you responded? The question is, how have you responded? But see the wonderful gospel promise there in verse 13. While the gospel message must speak of the reality of God's judgment, judgment is never the final word. Having heard the warning that rejecting Jesus in favour of idols will mean the judgment of eternal restlessness, we're reminded once again of the reward for those who are in the Lord. The idols may offer immortality and victory over death, but they can never deliver it. In Christ, however, we can say that someone who has died in the Lord is blessed. What a remarkable thing to say. What a statement which has in it the greatest hope imaginable. That physical death is not the end. And instead, in Christ, it's the doorway into God's promised rest. God's judgment brings restlessness, but his salvation brings full and complete rest. Jesus said, Come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is his call and his promise to all who have been caught up in the restless clamour of Babylon and all its idols. And when we come to him, that rest starts now. We don't need to wait till our physical death because we've been crucified with him already. We've already died. We've died in him and our life is now secure in him with the Father. So come to him and know his rest.